I told someone earlier, I have seen the depths of knowledge. Um, it's, it's pretty deep. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to the depths now. <laughs> I'm still ignorant, but I've at least seen it. So, okay, there you go. Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Um, maybe you have been one of the type of people who have heard it said, or maybe you've been the one that say it. You probably have. If you're a dad, I can guarantee you've said it at some point. If you want it, you got to earn it, right? We live in this interesting sort of culture where we give participation trophies to kids so they don't feel left out. But then we also like highly exalt these sports figures who work incredibly hard to perform amazing feats of athletic ability. And so we almost have this dichotomy where on the one hand it's like, well, just, you know, just, just let them have something to show them that, that, that we appreciate them trying. But on the other hand, there's a message of you gotta earn it. They don't give out participation trophies in professional sports, do they? And there's a reason for that. Um, you don't get, there's no, um, in the corporate world, you don't, you don't get backup CEO. <laughs> There's no backup CEO, right? Like not by a title. No, you didn't, you didn't get hired for the CEO, so we're going to hire you for the backup position. You know, there's nothing like that. You've got to earn it. So there's a recognition, uh, even in our culture, even when you look around and you think people are just being handed stuff just because they're there, that there's still a recognition that you still got to earn it. If you want it, you got to earn it. Maybe you've heard this old saying, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Y'all heard that? I did that with the boys uh, today in Sunday school. I said, reach down, grab, grab the shoelaces, and try to pull yourself up. James about fell backwards <laughs> trying to do it. Mitchell, Mitchell did fall down, but he always falls down, so he's okay. But the, the idea of just pulling yourself up, doing the hard work to advance yourself. If you're poor, you go work and you get money, right? If you're, if you're having trouble, you go work it out. You go figure it out. You go do for yourself. God helps those who help themselves, right? That's kind of that mentality. The problem is, it'd be a lot easier if religion really worked that way. If the Christian faith was really that sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, because then, because then you could just be spiritual by the things you do, right? You know, just like you get stronger by lifting weights. You could lift your spiritual weights, so to speak. You do your disciplines. Pray three times a day. Monks prayed seven times a day. They called them the hours. And different points of the day, they would pray. Middle of the night, they'd get up to pray. Um, Ora et labora was uh, Benedict's way of putting that. Prayer and work. That's the life of the monk. Prayer and work. you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If you want it, you got to earn it. That's that mentality. But the Christian faith doesn't really work that way. In fact, the Christian faith works by a completely different principle. No matter how much you want it, you can't earn it. And Paul is talking to a Galatian church. A Galatian church that has fallen away from the gospel and has adopted, if you want it, you got to earn it sort of mentality. 
They've taken on this message that says if you want to be good with God, if you want to be justified before God, if you want to have that relationship with God, you've got to be this type of person. You've got to do these things. You've got to walk this line. And this is the way you come to know God. This is the way you earn your salvation. And the problem is they've completely left the gospel for this false message. Those that haven't left yet are on the fence. They're wondering. Those that have left, Paul's heart is burdened for them. He knows that if you leave the gospel, you've left everything. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at the nature of the gospel. I want us to look at what it takes to be justified before God. So stand with me as we read from Galatians chapter 2. We'll read verses 15 through 21 together, and then we'll talk about them. Galatians 2, starting in verse 15. This is God's Word. And though it was written to a church in Galatia in the first century, because these are God's words, they still have the power to change your life. Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words, just as meaningful as they were in Galatia, in Paul's day, would be that and more to Crestview Baptist in Prattville in our day. God, I pray that you would use this word to change us, to fashion us into your image, to remind us of what the gospel is and how important it really is. Father, you do the work in us so that we may do the work to bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Right immediately... Paul is dealing with an issue in Galatia that, that, that requires that strong response and he's already kind of defended his own authority as an apostle. That's already called under question. Now that he's gotten out of the way, the authority that he has as an apostle, he is going to focus on the authority of his message and that is the gospel itself. And the gospel begins with a problem of works. The problem of works. So, so before you even get to Christ, there is a lead up to that. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth. He's talking about him and the folks that are with him. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is the air quote sinners. 
uh, if you're a Jew and you're talking about the Gentiles, there's a couple ways to refer to them. One nice way would have just been nations. That would have been the nice way. Another way would have been to call them sinners. They're not the ones that have God's word. They're not the ones that know God's ways. They're not the ones that know God. God didn't reveal himself to them. God revealed himself to the Jews. So those sinners over there, you can hear them talking down through their nose. <laughs> Looking, you know, almost, almost with their noses so high that they can't see anything because they're, you know, looking down on on Gentiles. Another by the way, another way would be to call them dogs. Yeah. That that's how highly they thought of Gentiles. And so Paul's using it in kind of the colloquial way. You you could almost hear the the um the sarcasm with which Paul says sinners. We're Jews, but even we know even though we have the law, we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law. You see, the problem with works is they don't work. The problem with works is though we try and we try and we try, we don't get there. We can't get there. Why can't we get there? Because it's too hard. Anybody ever been swimming in the ocean? You ever been caught in a rip current? It's too hard to get out, isn't it? Rip currents are dangerous. They destroy. Because people try to fight against them. They try to get back to the shore straight away and they're fighting against them and they can't make it. Because they wear themselves out. I mean, you got the whole ocean fighting against you. It's a rough battle. I think of a drug addict who's sitting in a house somewhere in the middle of the slums. So high, they don't even know their, their own name. How in the world are they going to get out of that mess? They can't get out of that mess. That's the exact same picture that Paul is painting for us. He's saying if you're trying to earn your justification with God, you can't do it. Because you're fighting a battle you can't win. If anyone could have won this battle... It would have been Paul. He's a Jew. He has all the benefits of being a Jew. One of God's chosen people. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about the benefits of being a Jew. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if, any, if anyone has a reason, I'm sorry, I'm trying to turn there real quick. If anyone has a reason to boast, I have more. Right? We're... Did they move Philippians in this Bible? I can't find it. There we go. <laughs> Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm, I'm better than you are. Listen, what he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Puts himself under the law with this. He's saying under the law, you get circumcised on the eighth day. When you're in the law, you're on the fast track to holiness with God. Right? People are people don't even. One point, God talks about the city of Nineveh in the story of Jonah. Right, at the end of the story of Jonah, he is getting on to Jonah for not caring about people who are going to die. And God says, "Should I not be concerned over the city with 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? 
The world trying to find God is hopelessly lost. Like fumbling around in the dark, can't see anything and have no clue where they're going. The law is like fast track. It's like having bright neon signs saying this way to God. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the better tribes, one of the tribes that received blessings and not curses when Jacob blessed his sons. One of those tribes that was upheld as one of the better ones. One of the southern tribes, in fact. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only am I a Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a really good Jew. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, if anybody's going to uphold the law, it's a Pharisee. Man, they had it down to a science. They knew exactly what to do to fill the law. Verse 6. As to zeal, oh, don't think it was empty. I persecuted the church. I went around fighting against the enemies of my faith. Here's a guy that is not only brought into the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, and buddy, he is on a rampage to get rid of anybody who tries to contradict that law. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Who but Paul should be able to say, I am justified before God because of my works. The problem is, even Paul knows you can't be justified by works. Look back at verse 16, at the end of verse 16. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see that, that last line? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He said it another way in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. In Romans 3, 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The problem with works is, no matter how good you are, you can't be perfect. Um, I am so thankful that I did not have to have perfect grades to graduate. They, they, I, I, don't, I don't even know that I got very many hundreds at all in seminary. I know, I know I got close. I got some 98s and 99s. I'm not sure I got very many hundreds. You don't have to be perfect to do good, but you gotta be perfect to please God. See, because here's the problem. We owe it all to Him anyway. And if we are not perfect, then we are failing Him. When we are not perfect, we are opposing Him. And the nature of the gospel is such that you cannot earn the righteousness that you're seeking after. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you do, the problem with works is they do not work because you will not work. You will be imperfect. You will mess up. Well, pack it all up. We got no reason to be here, right? Not true. You see, because to counteract the problem of works, there's the promise of faith. Look with me 
Again in verse 16, I want to turn your attention to one phrase we kind of skipped. Paul sandwiches. He says, you're not justified by works of the law. And then at the end he says, you're not justified by works of the law. But in the middle, look what he says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, the way that you are justified is by Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by works. Period. That's the message of the gospel. He says, faith is what makes us right with God. Well, wait a minute. Where do you get that? Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. God is promising Abraham. He says, he says, you follow me. You follow along with me. You go where I tell you to go, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your people as plentiful as the sand on the shore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And verse chapter 15 of verse 6, verse 6 of Genesis says, And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. And what God does is He says, you know what? That's good enough for me. In the Gospel of John, when we did our series in John last year, I know, I know it was more than a year ago. I know you remember all of my sermons, but in one particular time we looked at a passage where Jesus said, this is the work of the Father, to believe in the one whom He has sent. In a sense, we have a justification by works. It's just by the work of belief. We put faith in Christ. That's our work. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do anything else. That just means that's what brings us to salvation. That's what makes us right with God. It's not in what we do. It's in who we believe in. Because Christ has done enough. What's interesting, in this Genesis 15, go, go home and read Genesis 15 later. What you'll see is that God gives Abram a promise. Abraham questions the promise. He says, oh, how are you going to make this happen? I don't even... How are you going to make my generation so great? I don't even have a son. When I die, all my stuff's going to a servant because i got no one to pass it on to. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you a son. He makes those promises and Abraham believes. Abraham still hasn't done anything yet. Read that passage. That's the work that Abraham does. It's not the getting up and going somewhere else. It's not the following God. It's not filling out the checklist of praying every day and reading your Bible and fasting and meditating and, and, and engaging in spiritual disciplines and doing all the things that we would check off. Just very simple. He believed God. And God said, that's enough. The promise of faith is that we are justified when we put faith in Jesus Christ and not by what we do. It's, it doesn't, what we do is a byproduct. Who we put faith in. That's our job. That's our work. We constantly struggle with being good enough. I, I did before, before I was, uh, uh, before I came to know Christ, I constantly struggled with being good enough. I've got to be good enough. I mean, I've told you all before, I was the kid, third grader, who tucked my shirt in without being told 
I mean, if that ain't, if that ain't a problem, <laughs> I don't know what is. Come on, third grader. I couldn't do any of the terrible stuff, so. My problem was that I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be, I wanted to be good enough. And God says, you can't be good enough. I want you to trust me. I'll make you good enough. You see, that's the funny thing. Belief is what brings about that righteousness. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, Paul, Paul's really talking about this. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that a person who does the commandment shall live by them. That's how the law is. The law is, here's the command, you live by them, that's, that is where righteousness comes from. But look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. How are you gonna, how are you gonna, how are you gonna get up to God? You've heard the expression of the, the, the religions being like, you're at the bottom of a mountain, you're trying to get to God on top of the mountain. How are you gonna get up that mountain? You try to get up that mountain with this way, you can't get there. You try to get up with this form of belief, that's not gonna get you there. You try to get up with this or that or the other thing there. None of them can get you up the mountain. Verse 7. Or who will descend down to the abyss? Now turn it backwards. Picture the Marianas Trench. Who can go down? Who can dive down that deep? You have to have special kind of equipment. And it's equipment that's made in such a way that people can't go in it. We cannot explore the depths of the Marianas Trench. How are you going to get all the way down? We can't even get down to what we think is the bottom of the ocean. We don't even know if that's the bottom of the ocean. Who knows what lies in the depths somewhere? How are, you, how are you going to go all the way down? How are you going to go all the way up? You can't do that. It's too far for you. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you interesting. People will go to great lengths to find great, great lengths to find God. And all the while, He's right there. It's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Or if, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved for it is with the heart one believes and is justified. And it is with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying you can't get to God. You can't reach up to the highest points to get to God. You can't go to the deepest depths to get to God. You have no way of getting to God, so God comes to you. That's the promise of faith. Keep reading verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. Same Lord is Lord of all. See, you know, part of the problem in Romans, there's some Jews and some Greeks. And they don't always see eye to eye. Paul says, don't worry about that. God's got that handled. Bestowing his riches on all who call him for Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Period. The problem of works is they don't work. The promise of faith is faith is the work. That leads us to a question it has to do with guilt. The position of guilt. What about, what about guilt? Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. See, because the way you come to Christ, you ironically have to be completely separated from God before you can be completely justified by God. You gotta realize you're a sinner. So if we find out we're sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Let me see if I can. Okay, so the Greek word is very complicated here. No! That, that's the Greek. Absolutely not. Sorry if I scared some of y'all. Y'all okay? Do we need to get a pacemaker next time I do that? Just in case? Okay. Um, get a defib back in the back there. Um, no. No, 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 no. He's not a servant of sin. Why? Verse 18. Because if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove that I'm the one who's wrong. I'm the one who tore it down in the first place. I'm the transgressor. When I come to realize that, that when I put my trust in Christ, I have made a confession that says I am guilty. I did it. It was me. I plead guilty. It's all me. Until you do that, there's no justification. That's the ironic thing. One point or another, you're going to admit you're guilty. When you come to Christ in faith, it's, it's like you take it on the chin as opposed to trying to run and hide. Now, you may remember from your youth, it's really hard to outrun mama. It's even harder to outrun God. Now, Malcolm, Malcolm can attest to that. He's told me before, um, when, when his mother was still alive, he told me stories about some of the things that she had to get on to him for and try to set him in line. I can remember that. I remember being a little, little guy, doing something wrong, mama getting on to me, I slapped her in the face. That was terrible. And boy, did I learn my lesson. Boy, did I learn. As hard as it is to outrun mama, you can't outrun God. You see, we still have to bear the consequences of our sin, but one important consequence isn't there anymore. And that's condemnation. Look in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. One of the most basic truths of life is that when you sin, you will die. God told that to Adam and Eve. He said, when you eat, the day that you eat the fruit of this tree in the garden, you will die. And they thought they had gotten away with it when they ate and were still alive. But they hadn't. They died. 
Physically, they were still alive. They lived, Adam lived 912 years, I think it was. Don't know how, how long Eve lived. But I'm pretty sure it was a good long time too. But that day they died. The day that you realize that you are a sinner and you put trust in Christ, did you know you died that day? You may not have had a funeral, but you died. He says, I, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, that's what resurrection is, isn't it? It's death and then life. That's what God does with us. He kills us in our sin and raises us in His righteousness. That's what's so cool about the the, the, the position of the guilt really is that that guilt no longer has its eternal consequences. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? There, there's something even better, and that's the presence of Christ. This is when it gets really cool. You see, I mentioned that word resurrection. That re- resurrection is you die and then you, you, you come alive, right? Well, this is what happens. We die to that fleshly way of living, that way of living that says, I'm going to earn God's favor on my own. We die to that and we're raised in a new kind of life that says, I put faith in Christ. And because of that, there's a presence of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that presence works both ways. We are with Christ and Christ is with us. Look in verse 20, beginning of verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Notice it does not say Christ has been crucified with me. We're joining Him. Christ has already gone to the cross. He's already given His life. We join Him in that death when we accept Him as Lord. Because we kill our flesh. We kill the person that wants to do what we want to do that wants to try to earn our good way toward heaven. And we say, no, 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 no. That person is now dead. That person is dead gone. He is crucified with Christ. May as well have nailed him to the cross right next to Jesus because he's dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you catch what he's doing? He's playing both sides. He's saying we're crucified with Christ, so Christ is in us. Now, Here's, this is where it gets, this is where it's great for me. It ain't Christ, it ain't me who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, because my body hasn't died. My sinful nature has died, but my body hasn't died. That life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Boy, that's a completely kind of different lifestyle. Instead of working and trying to earn your way for God's favor, to put faith in Christ and to live in that faith, Habakkuk said the just shall live by faith. What he's saying is, look, you don't get justified by what you do. You get justified by who you put your faith in. And I'm going to tell you something. Faith in faith is worthless. 
Faith in good, nice, positive things doesn't do anything for you. Faith in Christ is the only thing that will save. Your faith is only as good as what you put it in. So what, what kind of difference does this make? Well, we live by faith. Doesn't mean we don't do works. Just means the faith drives works. James said, you, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying you're justified by those works. He's saying faith produces works. Which tells me that if we really, truly believe that God has changed us, that God has birthed in us a new life, we ought to be living like it. Maybe that means something as small as being a cheerful giver instead of a begrudging giver. I'm honestly convinced that God tells us to be a cheerful giver because He just wants us to experience a little bit of what He gets to do. Here's a God who gives freely and abundantly every chance He gets. And most people just trample all over it and don't even care. But man, when somebody does, when somebody's really thankful, when somebody expresses gratitude, when somebody tells God, thank you, makes them smile. I bet God smiles every time we sit down to a meal and somebody says a blessing with genuine thankfulness in their heart. Uh, there's a... There's a woman I know who prays, and I, I like what she says. She, she asks God to make us thankful. Because sometimes we don't, we're not thankful, are we? It's little things. It's little things like that. It's the things like we say we live by faith, and yet we keep wanting God to just hurry up and show us already. Hurry up and do. I don't want to feel this pain. I don't want to go through this trouble. God, you got to get rid of this person that works near me in the office. They're just terrible. We go through these things like, 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 it's all about us and, and life of faith doesn't do that. The life of faith says, what can I do with this person? How can I show this person the love of God? What is God trying to show me in the midst of this pain? How might God be using this to, to, to better me? What opportunities do I have because I'm in the hospital? Who can I talk to? What kinds of things can I say to build up, to encourage, to evangelize? What kinds of things can I do in this situation to bring the glory to God? We often don't even think along those lines. We just think of poor pitiful us, how bad it is. And that's not a life of faith. If we really are justified before God, we ought to act like it. Let me be hard for just a second. For some of us, that means we got to stop doing the things we're doing that we know we shouldn't be. I don't want to try to guess at what those things may be for all of you, but you know what I'm talking about. You know that thing. You know that action. You know you shouldn't be. 
for some of us, some of us need to take a good on hard look in the mirror and say, you know, God loved me enough to give himself for me. I need to quit beating myself up over how I look. Over my incompetencies or inadequacies. God made me the way I am for a purpose. And while I may think that I'm the ugliest creature that God has ever made, there's some fish in the depths of the sea that would say otherwise. <laughs> Speaking of that Marianas Trench. Y'all ever seen some of those things? Those things are hideous. But God made me the way that I am. He gave me the gifts that He gave me for a reason. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I fashioned you, I made you a prophet to the nations, he tells Jeremiah. I'm going to take out prophet for the nations just a second. And I want you to picture God saying to you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I fashioned you, I made you as blank. What's that blank? Doesn't matter how ugly you are or how short you are or how much your hand shakes or what sort of physical problems or emotional difficulties you may be struggling with. God has handcrafted you for His purpose, for His glory. Some of you need to remind yourself of that. I didn't, I didn't look up the time. I don't, I don't know when this was around, but sometime in the ancient world, some folks devised this little thing, this giant contraption known as the Mechanical Turk. It looked like a marvel of science centuries before its time. It could do things automatically. It was incredible. People were awed and astounded by it until they found out why it was such a big contraption. There were people inside of it making it work. It didn't do that on its own. Oh, it looked kind of cool. It looked like it was doing it on its own, but there's really a guy sitting in it making it happen. You know, the Christian faith's a lot like that. We look like we do a lot of stuff. And, and we do, we do in a lot of ways, but we're the mechanical Turk. We don't do anything that's worthwhile. Anything that's valuable. Unless there's someone inside of us doing it. That's the nature of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Empowering us as the simple machinery to do the task that He wants us to do. It's the difference between the hand and the glove. The glove doesn't do anything until the hand puts it on. 
Christ living in us is what produces the works of righteousness. The works that come from righteousness, not the works that lead toward it. When we put faith in God, we invite God to take dwelling within us to do the work in us for His glory. Have you ever done that? Or are you the empty machine sitting there, not capable of anything? If you have done that, are you living by faith in God? Practicing that faith day by day? Or are you just living for yourself? Satisfied that you got your get out of hell free card and that's all you need? I've done my, I've done my share. It's time for someone else. This life of faith is not called a career of faith. There's no retirement. I know some of, some of you are glad to be retired. I'm, I will be glad one day when I am. But, until that day comes, even when that day comes, this life of faith is a life. Which means until that life ends, until you draw your final breath, God still has a purpose for you. He has made you. He has gifted you. And now he is challenging you to live in light of that. While we sing this invitation, I'm going to invite you to just do what God wants you to do. Whether that's to, whether that's to give your heart to Christ, to experience the freedom that comes from not having to work for it, but from trusting in Christ and letting him do the work. Or whether that's the getting up and working under His power, for His glory, because of what He's done for you. While we do this hymn, I ask you to come. Let's pray together. Father God, you're, this is Your time. You, you are working. You've spoken to us through Your Word. And now it's time for us to respond. So Lord, I pray that You would remove the barriers. Help us to get away from the mess that keeps us from You. God, I know um, when we put faith in You, You're the one who comes to us, who grabs us, who gets us out. You're the one who removes us from the miry clay and sets our feet upon the rock. Lord, I pray You do that. For those of us who don't know You, I pray that you would convict with your Holy Spirit. Move, move within them until they just, they just can't help but trust you. Show them through our words and our lives how, how the life of faith really goes. That it's not about earning your way. trusting you. For those of us who do know you, I pray that we would be faithful to the calling to which you have called us. As we sing this hymn, you take control. You be in charge. You have your way. You receive the glory. In Christ's name, amen.